This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. And welcome to, or for those of you who've already been attending, welcome back to the Australian Museum. I'm Narelle Lewis and I'm Manager of Public Programs. We gather today on the land of the Gadigal people. On behalf of the museum, I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that this was and will always be Aboriginal land. Well, today is the fourth in our series of six conversations celebrating the lives and achievements of some of the First Nations visionaries featured in our 200 Treasures exhibition in the Westpac Long Gallery. Before we kick off, though, uh, I will also let you know that this audio is being recorded and it will be um, up on our website in the coming weeks. So, here we are. For the next hour or so, we are going to be immersed in the legacy of Ujuru Nunakul, affectionately known to today's guests as Anikath or Nana Walker. She is better known to most of us as the poet Kath Walker, but as Rhoda and Wesley will testify, her achievements absolutely extended well beyond the written word as a passionate activist and campaigner for Aboriginal rights. As the first published Aboriginal poet in Australia, Ujuru Nunakul introduced a new voice to our landscape. She championed the strength of Aboriginal culture while decrying the impacts of colonisation and racial inequality. She was a matriarch for an absolute dynasty of First Nations artists and activists, and we're blessed to have two of those here with us today. This is going to be such a treat. So about these two people, who I'm sure need no introduction, but I'm going to introduce them anyway. <laughs> Rhoda Roberts AO is a giant of our arts community. She is a widgeable, wireable woman from the Bundjalung territories of northeastern New South Wales and southern Queensland. There are a few places in the arts landscape that hasn't been touched by Rhoda's work, either directly or indirectly. Her contribution to the creative landscape is prolific and she has spanned generations of artists, even though she only looks 30. <laughs> As a small Not. taster of her work, and this is really just a small taster, she was head of First Nations programming at the Sydney Opera House for over nine years. Mm. She co-founded the Aboriginal National Theatre Trust and is currently the curator of the Parchma Light Festival in Alice Springs. She was also artistic director of the Festival of the Dreaming, staged in the lead up to the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games and creative director for the awakening segment of that opening ceremony. She has worked as a journalist, an actor, a playwright, an artistic director, and believe it or not, is also a registered nurse. I am. <laughs> Today, she's joined on stage by another trailblazer of the arts, Wesley Enoch, AM. We missed that. Sorry, Wes. Uh, Wesley grew up on uh, Minjirribar, or North Stradbroke Island, and is a proud Kwandamuka man. He is a writer and director who's led some of the country's flagship arts companies, serving as artistic director for Elbidgery Theatre Company, Queensland Theatre and Kwemba Dijara Indigenous Performing Arts, just to name a few. In January this year, he handed over the reins of Sydney Festival after five years in the top job. Wesley has written and directed iconic Indigenous theatre productions, including The Sunshine Club and Steven Stages of Grieving, co-written with Deb Mailman in 1995, which 97. is again being presented at Sydney Theatre Company as we speak. 
He has recently been announced as Indigenous Chair in the Creative Industries with QUT, bringing him closer to where it all began. So I've had the great pleasure and honour of working with both these people and learned so much from them over the, the years, and so I'm going to hand it over to them now. Thanks, Narelle. Thanks, Narelle. <laughs> learned a lot from you as well, Narelle. That <laughs> <laughs> takes us to that first photo of... Now, I refer to uh, Udru Nunakal as Ani Kath because I grew up... Um, so we're part of the same kind of clan group. So New Knuckles, Nugis and Gurumpuls are the three clan groups of Mindiraba, Mungampan and Kwandamuka country. And so there's this whole kind of family connection. In fact, one of my earliest memories of Ani Kath was her coming, was being asked to speak at a wedding. And she, she was, um, this poem, which is actually the, the name of the poem is just question mark. And it's all about a tree and the tree talking to me and talking back to her and all this kind of stuff. And this, I remember this uncle at the back going, ah, she'd shit herself if the tree talked back to her. <laughs> and this constant kind of sense of going, even though in the community she was just one of us, she had this incredible kind of profile beyond that as well. But, I mean, when was the first time you met? Um, well, I met when I was a young girl. Um, my father and Nana Walker, who I used to refer to her as before 1988, um, were both on Fakatsi and uh, Nana Walker really wanted to push that it was an all-Aboriginal-run organisation by the time the referendum in 67 came around. And yes, we got that yes vote. So the following year, my father was the chair of Fakatsi and Ujirunu Nuckle became the secretariat and treasurer or something like that, so... People might remember for cuts now, give it the, the acronym The is Federation huge. for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander... Advancement... Advancement League something. Something, something. It was basically, it was this, for cuts, it was like this huge thing, but that, you, you talk about this one, the Aboriginal Charter mm. of Rights, written in 66 or...? Yeah, it was uh, actually 62 or something. Was I think it, earlier it was than earlier that? Yes, yeah, yeah. where she talked about, you know, ensuring that uh, our world was like a Bill of Rights. Mm. Well, we didn't have a Bill of Rights, in fact. The lead-up to... I mean, that, that image of her in, in, uh, in army uniform, I'll go back to that one, is very telling that, you know, she was uh, part of the land army. Uh, she was very strong as part of that. And that these kind of partnerships that formed between white and black Australians during World War II was very, very strong. And I think that it came through from World War I, if the Depression and all those kind of things kind of slowed it down, World War II sped it up again where people were fighting side by side. And then uh, when we get... Well, this is 1943. And that year, her brothers, two of her brothers, oh. had been taken into a Japanese prison of war camp. So I think that also persuaded her to join the Women's uh, Land Army. Land Army, yeah. Yeah. And her um, husband, actually, and the reason, just going back to why she was referred to by a lot of our mob as Nana, was there was the old um, skin lines to uh, Stratty, but also her first husband, Bruce Walker, was from the Logan Albert River mm -hmm. districts, which of course is our mob. So, yeah. All those kind of connections. And so this Charter of Rights, really much, I think, you get both the artist and the activist 
in mm. this, her ability to, to craft through her words her sense of what the future will be uh, as well. I mean, I think this, this one is, is really quite a, a powerful, powerful poem. I wonder if I should just read it out. I think you should because what's most interesting is when you hear it and you listen to that oral dialogue, mm. I often question how much has changed. Mm. We want hope, not racialism. Brotherhood, not ostracism. Black advance, not white ascendance. Make us equals, not dependence. We need help, not exploitation. We want freedom, not frustration. Not control, but self-reliance. Independence, not compliance. Not rebuff, but education. Self-respect, not resignation. Free us from a mean subjection, from a bureaucrat protection. Let's forget the old-time slavers. Give us fellowship, not favours. Encouragement, not prohibitions. Homes, not settlements and missions. We need love, not overlordship. Grip of hand, not whip hand wardship. Opportunity that places white and black on equal basis. You dishearten, not defend us. Circumscribed, you should befriend us. Give us welcome, not aversion. Give us choice, not cold coercion. Status, not discrimination. Human rights, not segregation. You, the law, like Roman Pontius, make us proud, not colour conscious. Give the deal you still deny us. Give goodwill, not bigot bias. Give ambition, not prevention. Confidence, not condescension. Give incentive, not restriction. Give us Christ, not crucifixion. Though baptised and blessed and bibled, we are still tabooed and libelled. You devout salvation sellers, make us neighbours, not fringe dwellers. Make us mates, not poor relations. Citizens, not serfs on stations. Must we old Australians in our land rank as aliens, banish bands and conquer castes, and then we'll win our own at last. Mm. Powerful style. Mm. This, this play too, this was the opening of uh, a play. In fact, Lydia Miller um, did this particular uh, poem at the front of my, my professional acting gig my, my, in 1993. Good Lord, were you on Broadway? Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that um, as my first professional acting job was in a play called One Woman Song, which was about Annie Kath. And mm. this poem yes. is, in fact, the opening of that. And Lydia Miller, who was the actor there, there were three actors who played um, Annie Kath. There was Lydia Miller, Deborah Malman and Naoki Gay Bonner. And that name's familiar because she was Neville Bonner's granddaughter. And so the sense of this kind of history um, that was being told there was such a powerful thing. And I remember her coming uh, in rehearsals and I was sitting on the floor, she was sitting in the chair, and I remember her leaning across to me and she, said, she was watching this non-Aboriginal director directing us. She leant across to me and said, yeah, you have to do it your own way when you get older, like this, this sense of... <laughs> but she was such a voice of encouragement, but a tough voice as well. She has an extraordinary tough voice. I should tell a little story, actually. I don't know if... I'm, maybe the names... I'll do their initials, and you'll certainly guess who they are, but anyway. So, you know, often it's funny how dancers always want to become actors, and often actors want to become dancers. And hell, we try to push that we can do it all because we have a very holistic culture. But sadly, amongst us, some of us can't dance and some of us can't <laughs> act. And um, at 
Nana Walker, it was an extraordinary time, and we will get to this, but um, with the Playwrights Conference, the first National Black Playwrights Conference um, was established in the 80s. And Nana Walker was like the patron, and it was just a who's who of the writers in Australia. There was, they're all lates, unfortunately, late Bob Mazza, the late Justine Saunders, the late Jack Davis, late Ujuru Nunako, Oh gosh, the Bobby late Kevin Merritt. Gilbert. Kevin Gilbert, yeah. Kevin Gilbert, um, Mr. Merritt, oh, just Brian Sire, and so many. And so this Playwrights Conference was an extraordinary first for many of us. These were the pioneers. And it was really the stage where they were passing the mantle. And they did it with such generosity. And of course, the matriarch of that period was, of course, Ujuru Nunakul. And this is before she changed her name, so it was Nana Walker. And she could be formidable, very formidable. But she, she could really see, and she could see people's strengths. So she told us all that we all had strengths, but she'd be quite honest if you're really shit. So there's one particular <laughs> dancer, SP, who wanted to be an actor. <laughs> And another dancer, Raymond, Raymond Blanco, who also wanted to be an actor. And at the Playwrights Conference, there was one of Nana's plays that she wanted to, you know, have blocked. And so she tried the two gentlemen out. And the first one, she said, darling, just go and set up a dance company because you are never going to be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> but it was her honesty, but also she really recognised where people's strengths were. Mm. Yes, but quite formidable. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, when you think about formidable human beings as well, this image you, you supplied of um, Judith Wright. Well, it's funny hearing you, that poem when I said, oh, I wonder how much has changed. An extraordinary amount has changed because of these pioneers, because of people that had a passion about their writing and what art is about of changing that status quo. And in 1962 at Jacaranda Press, uh, Judith Wright, amazing, amazing woman, um, was the submission reader for New Works. And she was sitting at the desk when Ujuru's poems came through. And they'd often been quite dismissed as political provocation writing, and they weren't regarded by the echelon as, you know, poetry. But Judith, of course, saw what was in them and saw the femininity as well. And often that doesn't get, when you look at black writing, often it's almost genderless. Mm. But when you do read Nana's work, you do, there is that femininity in it. Well, this, this idea yeah. that too, that she then had two sons. You talk yeah. about femininity, but she had a strong oh. motherly connection to those two, uh, well, did. young men into men. Yeah. And so there was that wonderful friendship. It wasn't about colour. It was two women, imagine the world in 62 trying to prove they could be great writers and so forth, and you knew who all the critics were, so they developed this great friendship, and I think she probably needed a sort of friendship like that, because she was considered this activist, which in those days, I guess, was a bit of a dirty word. It, you didn't really, and um, yes, she was also a mother, and by this stage, a single mum, mm. so she'd married Uncle Bruce, but on... That, that didn't last, and there was Dennis, and um, who was inherited, I guess, his mother's voice in that um, circumstance that he wanted to be an activist. He was part of the Black Panther movement, um, you know, in the late 60s, 
with Stokey Carmichael and all those influences from the States. Um, but she had another son and she called him Vivian. And when she birthed Vivian and someone at Stradbroke Island said, what are you going to call this boy? She said, I'm going to call him Vivian. And they went, well, you can't call a boy that name. You're going to have all sorts of trouble. <laughs> and of course, Dennis and Vivian were like, um, what's it called? What's the word? Chalk, chalk and cheese. Chalk and cheese. <laughs> but actually, they were her sons. Completely her sons. Well, I love this idea that Anika, for me, represents two very strong lines, a strong political line and a strong artistic line, so that, that many on the island now have inherited one of those two lines, mm. a strong poli That's political true. view or a strong artistic view and how they overlap. So you, you see someone like Stephen Page and the Page Boys, so their mother is a new knuckle, is from Shropwick Island. Their father, Malanjali, from down there, that country. Yes, and so the sense, too, that we don't talk about that, but that's a Strabrock Island connection and that we grew up with this kind of influence of Arnie Kath in all of that. But then you also have this strong political kind of thing. So Dean Parkin, who's head of the Statement from the Heart uh, Foundation, he's a new knuckle. So his mother was my mother's... Um, uh, uh, What's it called? Best lady. No, uh, bridesmaid. <laughs> I was going to um, say lady in waiting, but yeah. we don't have royalty. <laughs> you know, and there's this whole kind of family connection there. Um, then you have uh, his sister, Delvine Cockatoo Collins, who is an artist. You have my sister, who's the Minister for the Arts in Queensland. You have this kind of political and artistic kind of line. Well, I wanted to actually um, ask you about that because it's quite surprising. I mean, Stradbroke's not a big place. Um, really strong families, particularly the Ruskers and the yeah. Enochs and the Par Parkers. Parkers, and the, big, yeah. But Delaney's. there's your sister now in Parliament. Who would have thought Joe will be turning in his grave, I tell you. <laughs> um, but also, uh, Uchiru Knuckle stood for the Labor Party in 69. And then again, for the Democrats, I think it was in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. um, so consistently there's been people from Stradbroke and, of course, you mentioned Neville Bonner, mm. who, of course, grew up on Cabbage Tree Island, went to school with my father. Yeah. But there's just... Li literally, we're connected everywhere. Um, but this... What is it about Stratty? And let's bear in mind, the island was disrupted very early on mm. with colonisation and the missionaries and all the rest of it but also the sand mining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder, is that where the politics... Where, where, why think, is it so political? I think there's two things there. One, one is that the history has been very long. In fact, the, on Strabrook Island, uh, and Anikath uh, uh, was part of this kind of movement, a lot of the records and uh, oral histories that have come from her were part of the native title thing that took 16 years, mm. and that was 10 years ago, so... She was just dying, and a lot of these kind of stories were being yeah. passed down. The Delaney's, um, Ian Delaney, who was, he was um, vice chair at one point of ATSIC, uh, was very strong in the kind of native, native title movement. So that we got native title about 10 years ago. In fact, uh, the 4th of July is the 10th anniversary of native title on the island. We so should have some fireworks. Oh, yes. Well, we're a bit COVID scared in Queensland, <laughs> if you haven't noticed. Um, but this whole idea of uh, political activism, and I, to borrow from Kevin Gilbert, one of his sayings is, you sharpen your axe on the hardest stone. 
and that Joe Bjork Peterson and the National Party were a very hard stone that meant that had, people had to sharpen their arguments and their conversation in a totally different way. And look, I think that the, the Benevolent Society, the missions, the, the Leprosorium, all of these kind of things that were happening on Stratbrook Island for the hundred or so years before, actually always meant that down at One Mile and down mm. oh, well, a bit further around at, um, uh, at Myora Springs where the, the mission was, it meant that we were always, our mission was always on country. And so we could always keep doing the, our cultural practices because we were far enough away but close enough to a capital city like Brisbane. For those who don't know Minjeraba, it's literally half an hour on, on, a, on a quick ferry across from the mainland and about half an hour drive from the centre of Brisbane. So it's relatively close, but it has been um, isolated in many ways. And we'll get to that a little later by, by uh, no bridging or anything like that. So there's this sense of proximity and yet distance, distance. is what I think as well. And, and it's, it actually has been a bit of a saving grace. If you go southern Queensland and then you go down into the northern rivers, of course, it's full of mm -hmm. the river systems. And yeah. in fact, we used to do a ceremony every year from northern New South Wales in our canoes and canoe to Stradbroke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've just revitalised that old, um, like remaking the canoes and actually doing that trip. Mm. Glad I didn't live back then. No Look. time to stop for a cigarette in those days. <laughs> um, and so we were in quite lucky in that because of that geography, when the missionaries did come in and hallelujah, we got the Pentecostals. Um, so we, we were all placed on these islands, but in a way it was a bit of a saving grace because you were isolated and still able to continue some of the practices. I'm just thinking about this. this can so I, we, we should, we, we'll run out of time if we don't. Yeah, but just can this I read idea. this poem? That's what I was about to say. So I, um, can you move up to see where Vivian, so I can show them Vivian? Sorry. Uh, Am I going to? There. there we go. So see that gentleman sitting on your left, on your right, at the end there? That's Kabul Ujirunu Knuckle, which is Ujirunu Knuckle's youngest son, Vivian. And his father was Raphael Salento yes. after she'd gone to work for the Salento family who were running a law firm in Brisbane. So Vivian was fabulous. Vivian, myself <laughs> and Lydia Miller set up a, a company called the Aboriginal National mm -hmm. Theatre Trust and Ujuru Nunuckle was our patron. And when I talk about her femininity, I'm consistently reminded of the mother she was and the protection of her boys. And so she wrote this poem when Dennis was 13. I think he was running off the rails a bit. Um, but when she used to do it later on and she'd talk about this poem, she would always refer to saying, it's for Vivian as well. Um, so I'll just read it if that's okay, because I just love it so much. My son, your troubled eyes search mine, puzzled and hurt by colour line. Your black skin soft as velvet shine. What can I tell you? Son of mine, I could tell you of heartbreak, hatred blind. I could tell you of crimes that shame mankind, of brutal wrong and deeds malign, of rape and murder, son of mine. But I'll tell instead of brave and fine when lives of black and white entwine and men in brotherhood combine. 
This would I tell you, son of mine. And it says everything about beautiful Ujuru Nunaku mm. because she was that bridge. She really could see that collaboratively we could adjust and change the world, um, which she did for us. She changed our world. Absolutely. And this is the Playwrights Conference, isn't it? So this was the National Black Playwrights Conference that I mentioned, of course, the late Bob Mazza in the middle, gorgeous Justine. Justine Saunders, yes. Mr Morani was a copper. We needed a copper to get some advice for a play, got him <laughs> in. And beautiful Lydia Miller up behind Vivian and uh, Michael well, Johnson. Well, this one in the Hawaii. Oh, I was saving him to last. God knows what he was thinking. Like, same with me, I'm beside him. But what we were thinking with tying our hair up like that. So <laughs> can anyone recognise who that is? Okay, well, he's... I guess as an Aboriginal, he's oh, had yes. the, the biggest role of um, travelling the country all the time. Oh, Wesley uh, Enoch? No. No. <laughs> Stephen Page, no. Stephen Page, no. Ernie Dingo. A young Ernie Dingo. Yeah. A young Ernie Dingo. Because Ernie had come into acting, he'd actually was playing for Perth Wildcats, a basketball team, because he's quite tall, he was very good. I think he'd gone to the States to try and make it, but, you know, you're up against... <laughs> got no chance. So he came back and decided to be an actor. I should just say that um, Uncle Vivian uh, took the name Kabul, which is the name of the carpet snake. Mm. And if you know Queensland well, in, well enough, lots of snakes. I think you know more than, no more than about 10 metres from a snake anywhere in Brisbane. That's how it works. But Kabul, you'll know a place called Kabulcha, uh, which is the place of the carpet snake. And, uh, and the carpet snake is a, a very strong, powerful, uh, totemic figure. In, in, in our families, and so he took that name. Ujru, people will know as the tea tree, the... the, the Paperbark. Paperbark. Mm. And that she took it on, that name, she said... She has a story, actually, in her writing about having a, a dream, a vision of uh, take, the, take the coals of the fire, take the paperbark of the Ujru, and kind of draw and, and keep your stories alive. So she kept Udru as that name, Nunakal, meaning the clan group that she came from. But I want to read this poem out too yes. then, which is Artist's Son, which very much is for Kabul. Yeah. My artist son, busy with brush, absorbed in more than play, untutored yet, striving alone to find what colour and form may say. Yours the deep human need, the old compulsion. Ever since man had mind and learned to dream, adventuring, adventuring, creative, unconfined. Even in dim beginning days, long before written word was known, your fathers too fashioned their, uh, their art, who had but bark and wood, the cave stone. Much you must learn from others, yes, but copy none. Follow no fashions, no art, the adventurer, his lone way, lonely must go. Paint joy, not pain. Paint beauty and happiness for men. Paint the rare insight glimpses that express what tongue cannot or pen. Not for reward, a claim that wins honour and opens doors. Not as ambition toils for fame, but as the lark sings and the eagle soars. Make us songs in colour and line. Painting in speech, painter and poet are one. Paint what you feel more than the thing you see, my artist's son. Joyful, so joyful. Beautiful. And I think a lot of people don't realise that um, Ujuru wrote a lot of poetry, we know that, but she also wrote a lot of plays mm -hmm. and did some very innovative work 
um, fairly early on. And when um, Vivian Kabul came back from New York after having a fabulous time for 10 years in New York, <laughs> um, it was quite tragic that they only got a few years to work together. Yeah. But the amount of work that they did in those years, so you mentioned the Expo, the Rainbow, Rainbow Serpent at Expo, which was pretty phenomenal. Amazing. In the 70s, Nana was also working on films and she actually won a Black Film Award in San Francisco in 1977 for Shadow Sister. And then you might remember the Marionette Puppet Theatre. So we were working at the Aboriginal National Theatre Trust and one of the productions we wanted to do was Ujuru, just incredible. So everyone across the country knew her and everyone wanted to work with her. And everyone knew also that if she wrote a poem about them, the story would get out to the yeah. mainstream. And so the amazing, God, we were so fortunate. We don't realise how blessed we were with the learnings and opportunities. And so we're really blessed that the late Mr. Bill Nige from Kakadu, who wrote a book called Kakadu Man. That was my daddy there. Kakadu, we'll come back to that. You can see how it looked when I was young, no. So Mr. Nige, amazing, writes a book, Kakadu Man, which I think many of you might be familiar with. And so Vivian and Nana Walker talked to him and they wrote a script to be the last show of the Marionette Puppet Theatre. And it was amazing. It was called Kakadu Man. And the lead character, the puppet, was a gentleman with his uh, moleskins and chambray blue shirt. And he's a Kubra. And he was called Yebut. And so every Yebut. <laughs> so they talk about the environment that was in the book and go, and the lizard would go, you can't do that. He got, yeah, but you know, um, and it was so clever and so extraordinary. There was the character, the Toyota, that had an attitude problem, um, but he was trying to break down the story of how some of our ancestral spirits had broken the law and then they were turned into rock or trees or so forth. Anyway, it was extraordinary and very few people realised that she was doing that sort of work. And writing puppetry stuff is very different, as you can imagine. And so we we're very fortunate that Film Australia in the day made a documentary on it. So if you ever get the chance, Kakadu Man it was called, and it featured Justine Saunders. And, um, yeah, it was just amazing. I think the sense of we, we all have these kind of legacies. Oh, well, actually, we'll go that there you are. There's your dad. That was 1988, the greatest day of my life on January the 26th. So we were all there from the theatre company and we were to do the Long March, which many of you might remember the 1988 Silent March through Sydney. And it was a day that would change our lives mm. for the better. Um, and my uncle, Charlie Harris, actually organised the Long March. We're just organisers in our family. And so just beside where Dad is, Nana Walker was like in front talking to that lady there. And we were about to head off from the park to do the walk. And we were coming up just before we got um, under the tunnel at Central. And Nana's there and she's wanting to stop for a cigarette. God bless her. <laughs> and, um, and she's huffing and puffing because, you know, it was a bit of a hill. And she goes, you know, I used to always wonder where our next leaders were from, were. And then she said, look. And when we looked back... All you could see was red, yellow and black. And it did look like a, a bloody snake walker. You know, it's just, it looked amazing. And she goes, there they are. Mm. 
And that was quite extraordinary, that to walk with... And her and Dad just reminisced the whole time about mm. Fakatsi and, and the marches they used to do. Um, and she was forever marching. Forever. And one of the things that she did that morning, this is a story that gets passed down, that she gathered native flowers together on the morning and went down to Kame, uh, Botany Bay, oh, sorry, and um, made a wreath and flew it out, uh, like jumped through it in, as, a, as a remembrance of what it was like when that first fleet arrived in that country there before it came around here. But, you know, there's, there's a couple of days before. Actually, you know, it's funny, but they used to always do that before marches. Oh, right. With, particularly when it was like Pastor Doug Nichols and mm. all that mob. But all those... Uh, Bill Wentworth used to always walk on those marches. So it was the early 70s, sort of, and they used to make these wreaths yeah. out of natives. Yeah. And they'd always throw them out in rem remembrance of... Wow. I remember her telling yeah. me a story once um, of leading up to the 67 referendum. So, you know, um, Menzies um, resigns, finishes oh, up God. his time, and um, Holt is for a very short time the Prime Minister. Where? And where, where, where? No. <laughs> where, where? Stop. Get a, put that water aside. Um, and, so, uh, and so this story that she tells of, of being in the lodge and there was Pastor Doug Nichols and a whole range of people in the room. And they're negotiating and talking and all that kind of stuff. And she's famously said that she doesn't drink alcohol. This is what she says to me now. Whether she did or she didn't, I don't need to know. Oh, I can tell you. <laughs> she, she used to say to us young ones, I never touch alcohol. Now, I don't need to know otherwise. Um, but she says that they negotiated all day and came to the end of the day. And the butler came in and said, oh, Mr. Prime Minister, dinner will be ready in, in whatever time. So he said, OK, let's stop there. And say, let's go and have a drink. Uh, Kath, would you like a drink? And she said, yes, I'll take a drink. And so she had that glass. It was a port. It was a port. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, and then she ran through the implications of that, her drinking that and him giving her that drink in all the states and territories of the country, saying, this is what it means when the federal government isn't looking after and creating laws because we are all governed by different flora and fauna acts often, or protection acts in each state and territory that's different. And she talked about that glass mm. of alcohol that she didn't drink as, the, as the, the moment that shifted the Prime Minister's view. Now, she's a storyteller. Of course, she might exaggerate, but there's a point where I go, yes, there's a thing that you go, it's important that something happened. Well, Arnie Joyce Clegg tells that story as well. Ah. Um, and my dad was there as well, and mm. Aunty Faith Bandler, the whole movers and shakers, right? And it is absolutely true. She asked for, he offered her a drink. She said, I'll have a port. Huh? And then she said, Prime Minister, you've just broken the law. Yes. And then rattled off, which Indeed. he had no idea of. So again, it was that shifting through a gentleness, but also activism, shifting that, that change, I guess. Mm. We all right for time? We've, we've yeah. got maybe another five minutes before we have to open up to the audience. Can I just tell you something that about her that really resonates with me? Is we grow up knowing that this incredible woman is one of the most famous Aboriginal people in the country and indeed around the world. And she's this great writer. So I remember when I was older, because you don't remember when you're a kid, you know, you just remember the beach and having fun. And she invited us, us up. And Michael Riley, the late Michael Riley, who was an amazing artist, but he was also a filmmaker. And we decided that we would go every weekend to Moongalba and uh, film 
Ujiru before she passed and get all those stories. And she was really, at that time, very, very big on telling us about biodiversity and environmental and the sort of species that had been there and then the sand mining had made them disappear and all those sorts of things. So I rock up. I don't know what I expected, but she's the most famous Aboriginal writer in the country. And it made me realise that day what she gave to this nation. Because she spent every ounce of money she got on her boys and her materials for her work because she was painting and drawing and, and she, there's a caravan, but that had all the books in it. And then there was her bed with a blue tarp that you could actually see through because it was so old outside the caravan and that was her home. And her home was in Moongalba. But I remember going, whoa. And I had to really shift my thinking because I had this assumption. But she was rich because mm. she was on country. She was living almost in the same place where she grew up as one of seven. And um, a few years later, all this mob from Nimbin wanted to honour her and, and gift her because she'd been so good to the, our communities down there. And so they built her a little house that, you know, for her getting old, nah, she just put all the books in there yeah. and still slept out on the, the bed. But it says a lot mm. of, you know, what she gave back. She would have been 100. She was 100 last November on the 3rd of November. Um, and uh, that, that thing I was telling you about where my, my first professional theatre career started in 1993... And I remember her leaning across to me and she goes, I see you, I know you, I've got a son like you. So as a gay man, to be acknowledged and kind of accepted because her son was also gay was really quite a beautiful kind of embracing moment. And, that, and I remember visiting her uh, just about oh, six weeks before she died. So she died um, in that September of 1993, just after that uh, play had happened. And she was there. She's still smoking with that bloody kind of filter. She had yeah. one of those long kind of filters on. Made her look very glamorous. And, um, and just this idea of you got a sense of urgency. Like she knew that the time was coming and she wanted everything to kind of come out. And she just, we talked for hours. Again, in this caravan and this kind of like makeshift place called Mungalba, which is, means the, the sitting down place, where, which is not far from where Myora Springs, where the freshwater spring of the island is, so where it has always been a gathering place. It was really a powerful thing. And I just, I, I went over it a little bit there, but this mm. was part of her activism against, uh, in the 80s, about bridging Stradbroke Island. Um, and if you know Stradbroke well enough, you know that from the Gold Coast, there's kind of, my, gran my father used to tell stories of being able to, when the tides were right and the sand had shifted, you could actually walk from, from the, all the islands from the Gold Coast up onto uh, South Stradbroke, onto North Stradbroke, uh, that this was even in his living memory, this idea of connection. But really, the bridge, a bridge onto the island would have stopped it straight away, would have, would have, the development would have gone through the roof. So Russ Hins, who was the development minister at the time, and a fat pig, big, ugly, <laughs> ugly toad. Uh, he, and to see this big, white, ugly man, 
up against this very slim black woman was just so amazing to watch the kind of debate in the media. And she was very strong in looking after the island, looking after country even then. And to think that she would have been 100 now um, says something, you know, uh, 27 years later that she... What, what it meant for her mm. and, and us as well. And she stopped it. Oh, she definitely stopped it. And for a woman who only went to schooling at the age of 13 and then went into domestic service, what an in incredible um, insight, wit and absolute sheer intelligence yeah. to do what she did. But I have to tell my mother's story. But she was just... She was a mother... And when Vivian got really sick um, and he was terrible, he wouldn't go to the doctors or anything because Lydia and I were both registered nurses, then got into the arts. So those last few weeks before we actually made him go to hospital, we were just nursing him day and night. And um, we rang Nana and said, you know, you better come to Sydney. It's, and we didn't know how to tell her because there was all this hope and... He was dying of AIDS and, and it was quite new for the community as well. We'd only had two other deaths of, um, you know, amongst Aboriginal communities. So it's a really big thing. So he's in hospital, like really sick. So Nana arrives, he's almost unconscious. He's got pneumonia, you know, it's the last days. Nana arrives with this big bag of oranges and she's methodically cutting these oranges like as if she's going to take it out to the football field, you know? It was like that. And we're watching her, and I could see that she had to do something. And then she started squeezing them, and she thought if Vivian ate this bag of oranges, it would make him better because of the vitamin C and pneumonia, just that. And I remember watching her, and I think she fretted for him. Mm because it wasn't very long later that she passed away, yeah. but she fought the authorities to have him buried yeah. on Moongalba, which was a really big thing, you know. Yeah. To, and that was quite extraordinary that she did get laid to rest on the land she fought so hard for with thousands and thousands and thousands of young Queensland school children went to get their first experience of an Aboriginal mm. environment. It was pretty amazing. I want to read this one last yes. poem before we do Q&A. Sorry. This, no, no. This is, when you talk about hope and a vision, this is a song of hope. Look up, my people. The dawn is breaking. The world is waking to a bright new day. When none defame us, no restriction tame us, nor colour shame us, nor sneer dismay. Now brood no more on the years behind you. The hope assigned you shall the past replace when a juster justice, grown wise and stronger, points the bone no longer at a darker race. So long we waited, bound and frustrated, till hate be hated and caste deposed. Now light shall guide us, no goal denied us, and all doors open that long were closed. See plain the promised dark freedom lover. Night's nearly over, and though long the climb, new rights will greet us, new mateship meet us, and joy complete us in our new dream time. To our parents' parents, the pain, the sorrow. To our children's children, the glad tomorrow. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.